The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. All right, well, like I said, I'm still trying to get adjusted coming back. And Sunday morning, I thought, there were two or three times in the message, I said, you know, it's like, like I had a two-second blackout, and I just all of a sudden was, okay, where, where am I? What's going on? How did, how did that sentence connect to the one before? And so today, as I was trying to get back in gear for what we're teaching in Genesis, dealing with election, I thought, this is a lousy topic to have to deal with mentally when you haven't had any sleep. So we're going to rely uh, with an extra special measure of reliance on the Holy Spirit this evening. So before we get started, let's uh, make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together tonight to study your word, that God the Holy Spirit would use what we study to give us a greater perspective of your sovereignty, your control of history, and the importance of understanding your faithfulness, and the fact that you have a destiny for each one of us, and that it is our volition that uh, is important in uh, achieving the Uh, spiritual growth as we head towards that destiny and that it is a a privilege that we have to be blessed by you and used by you in so many different ways. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight that you will help us understand these things. They're difficult for many people to understand, comprehend. There's much controversy and we pray that you would give us clarity of thought. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been studying in Genesis And we come to Genesis chapter 25, which is the birth of Esau and Jacob. And in the birth of Esau and Jacob, you have a pronouncement that is made by God related to the destiny of these two children. And this lays a foundation for the doctrine of election that is developed in Romans chapter 9. And so last time I began to... Uh, work our way through that. We'll just begin by going back to Genesis 25 and the birth of of, uh, uh, Esau and Jacob. And in that announcement of the birth, the Lord said to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now this lays a foundation that is then interpreted theologically by Malachi and then by Paul in the book of Romans. And it is specifically referred to in Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Romans chapter 9, verse 
11. Actually, the context begins in verse 10. And this is a section in Romans, as we studied last time, that deals with God's plan for Israel. And the question that is really being addressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11 is the question of God's justice toward Israel, seeing that they are under divine discipline. Now, they had not yet gone out under the fifth cycle, but they were clearly under God's discipline in the first century, and so the, and that uh, it was clear that God had already, in the plan for the church age, shifted to a point where he was blessing the Gentiles. And so Jews were asking a question that, okay, in light of what you have said regarding the justice of God, how can we say that God is just when uh, he seems to be uh, setting aside Israel? We haven't had the promises fulfilled, the prophecies fulfilled, the covenants fulfilled from the Old Testament. So what's going on? And it is in Romans 9 through 11 that Paul is answering that question. And I pointed out last time that if we make the mistake of just going to Romans 9, 10, and following, and taking that and extrapolating that as an isolated text, then it's easy to come up with a distorted view of God's choice, known as election. Let me just read the key passages here, and then we'll move on. Uh, Paul is giving a series of examples related to God's uh, elective choice in history. And the first comes from Isaac as opposed to Ishmael, and the second is related to Jacob instead of Esau. In verse 10 he says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now it is those verses that are taken by almost every Reformed theologian and given as a proof text for the doctrine of election for salvation and with more extreme Calvinists or hyper-Calvinists, it's taken to support the doctrine of double predestination, which is the, the doctrine that God chose some for salvation and he chose others for uh, preterition or damnation. And this is one of the key proof texts that they go to. And many people, many Christians, when they read through Romans and they come to this, this passage, they hit it and they, they think that's what it's talking about. Here are two individuals, Jacob and Esau, and doesn't the text clearly say that before they were born, before they they had done anything good or evil, before they had uh, made any decisions about anything, that God chose one and he rejected the other one? That just seems to be what it's saying on the surface. And it does seem that way, but you have to take this in terms of the context of what Paul is saying in Romans 9 to 11. And you have to understand it in light of how Paul is interpreting Genesis 25. And you have to understand what Genesis 25 is saying. I mean, the Bible is a, it must be understood as a consistent whole. So that if the writer of Genesis, which is Moses, says one thing and means one thing, that Paul isn't going to come along 
and change the meaning, reinterpret it to a new meaning. Now, that's a problem that you have in what is called Reformed theology. Now, that's a term that is uh, unusual or, or unfamiliar to some of you. Reformed theology is that branch of theology that came out of the Reformation that was primarily influenced by John Calvin and what is known as the French-Swiss Reformation. And uh, it is otherwise known as Calvinism. It is uh, influenced heavily in uh, Presbyterian circles uh, at, at at a former time in our history, congregational churches, which were uh, split off from Presbyterian churches, but Reformed theology was dominant in Anglican theology as exemplified in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which incidentally also uses this passage to uh, justify the doctrine of election. It was uh, in heavy, heavily uh, you know, Reformed theology influenced Scottish Calvinism, uh, the Scottish Reformed Church, it's distinct from Lutheranism as well as Anabaptist theology, which comes out of the Reformation. So that just helps you understand that the term that is used is Reformed theology, and that's sort of an umbrella term for, for much of this. And in, within Reformed theology, their uh, later theology developed in what was known as covenant theology. Now, the co- word covenant in covenant theology is not what you and I normally think of as the biblical covenants. When we think of covenants, we think of the creation covenant in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the Adamic covenant that is the redefinition of the original creation covenant, Adamic covenants in Genesis 3, 15 to the end of the chapter. Then you have the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, the land covenant in Deuteronomy 28, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Those are the biblical covenants, but in covenant theology, the covenants are these theologically extrapolated covenants that God made a covenant of works with Adam in the garden so that if Adam was obedient, i.e. he did good works, he didn't eat from the fruit, he'd be saved, and if he was disobedient, then he was uh, under condemnation. That's the covenant of works. And then after Adam failed, then God entered into a second covenant with man, uh, which is this theologically extrapolated covenant called the covenant of grace. And some Reformed theologians have a third covenant called the covenant of redemption. That's what they're talking about when they, when they use the word covenant in covenant theology. And covenant theology does not distinguish between Israel and the church. So that in covenant theology, when Israel rejects Jesus as their Messiah, God then disciplines them and they will and he takes away from them the promises made in the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant and these then these these prophecies, these blessings are spiritualized, allegorized to the church. And in covenant theology, Israel in the Old Testament is the church and the church in the New Testament is spiritual Israel. So they do not distinguish between Israel and the church. And that means that in covenant theology, there is no future for Israel in God's plan because the blessings that God originally promised to Israel have now been given to the church. So their interpretation of Romans 9 through 11 is completely different from the way you and I would interpret this 
coming from a dispensational background where we believe in a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture, and that leads us to an understanding of this distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. Now, it's important to understand these things because they set the framework for how many different people interpret interpret Scripture. In fact, I got an email from a pastor of a doctrinal church up in the Seattle area just earlier this week, and there's a man in his church, a new believer, who listened to a Reformed uh, Bible teacher on the radio and just came, just was just enamored instantly with this man's presentation and style and, and the fact that he had traced Reformed theology all the way back to Augustine and making this emphasis that, that see, it's got this history, it's got this tradition, it is uh, internally logical, it's, it's just this great tradition. And so uh, that is because it has this deep historical uh, foundation that must be superior to dispensational theology. And so he was uh, querying the other board members on the Chafer Seminary Board, saying, okay, what kind of book should I give this guy? I mean, this is a an ongoing debate in in among Christians related to the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, but there is a connection, an, uh, an internal connection that exists between covenant theology and it, how it handles this difference between Israel and the church and their view of of God's sovereignty and free will. And it all boils down to some really complicated stuff that goes on in Romans 9 to 11. So last time I pointed out that if we go to Romans, if we want to understand what's happening and what Paul is trying to explain and illustrate in Romans 9, 6 through uh, 13, then we have to understand the terminology within the structure of what he's saying in Romans 9 to 11. So I went to the end of Romans 11. Because if you know what your destiny is, where somebody is driving in terms of their argument, what the ultimate conclusion is going to be, then that helps you understand the details earlier. And I pointed out that from the end of Romans 11... On, in fact, we started at the end of Romans 11, uh, 28 to 31, then we backed up. And I showed that all the way through here, Paul is arguing for a future for ethnic Israel. And when he talks about Israel in these chapters, he is talking about the corporate ethnic nation. Even though there are numerous Jews that are saved. There's Paul, there's Peter, the other disciples, there's the 5,000 on the day of Pentecost, there's the 4,000 in Acts chapter 3. There's numerous other ethnic Jews who trusted Jesus as their Messiah. The nation itself as a whole refused uh, to accept him as their Messiah, rejected his offer to bring in the kingdom, and as a consequence, Israel was temporarily set aside in God's plan. And so, the answer to the question, what about God's justice in relationship to Israel, the answer that Paul is giving in Romans 9 to 11 is God has not ultimately set aside Israel. There will be a restoration, and God will ultimately fulfill the promises that he made to the fathers. The point that we're interested in is that what Paul is saying is that related to Israel has to do with Israel as a corporate body. And he is not addressing the issue of justification in these chapters. Therefore, you can't come in and say that this selection of 
Esau, uh, excuse me, the selection of Jacob over Esau has to do with justification. And that's where covenant theology and reformed theology goes in their doctrine of election is that this choice of, of Jacob over Esau was for justification. And what I showed last time in looking at the scope of these three chapters is that this has to do with God's choice to to bless the descendants of Abraham and to use them in communicating his word to the, the nations and in blessing all the nations, ultimately which uh, came through the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a choice for blessing within the, the historical plan of God not a choice related to uh, justification by faith. So having said that, by way of introduction, just to try to get all of our thinking back to where it was some three weeks ago, and I'm not sure I've really accomplished that this morning or this evening. See, I don't know what time it is anymore. Well, let's just back up to Romans 9 and kind of summarize our way through these opening passages. Paul starts off by expressing his sorrow over the fact that the Jews have corporately rejected Jesus as Messiah. We know that he is talking about Israel as a corporate entity because uh, he is a Jew and he accepted Christ as his Savior. Peter is a Jew. All of these other Jews have accepted Christ as Savior. So when he says that he has great sorrow and continual grief, in his heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren. Note the plural there. He's talking about a, a group. Uh, I, I, I wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And the key verse there is in verse 4, that it is to Israel as a corporate entity, as the biological, ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they are adopted. That happens in Exodus at the the time of the Exodus. The glory, that is the Shekinah glory, was uh, dwelt in their midst in the temple and later in the tabernacle between the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant. The covenants pertain to Israel. They're unconditional covenants given by God to Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. The giving of the law was a covenant, a contract between God and the nation Israel. It was designed to be a temporary uh, uh, covenant. That is the whole argument that we'll get into uh, later on in our study in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8. The service of God, that is the worship of God, in terms of the ritual in the tabernacle and the temple and the promises. All of this pertain to Israel. So it goes on to say in verse 5, Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Just a side note there. Notice Christ, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Clear statement of the deity of Christ. Just remember that when you have to deal with somebody who... Uh, after they watch the Da Vinci Code, thinks that Jesus was just a man. The point here is that all of these things were given to Israel corporately. It belongs to them, and it's not going to be uh, taken away from them. Then in verse 6, Paul says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, you have the large ethnic corporate Israel 
but among them there are many who are un- unsaved historically and at the time of Christ. So there is one group within the ethnic group that is true Israel, and this is uh, ethnic Israel who are regenerated. So not all Israel are of Israel. There are some that are unregenerate. And then he goes on to say in verse uh, 7, Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So the children of promise relate to those who come through the line of promise. God promised that there would be a a son through Sarah. We studied that back in Genesis chapter uh, 17, that it would be a son and it would come, he would come through Sarah. And then the ongoing promise from uh, Isaac to uh, Jacob, and this is the foundation of what we're looking at in Genesis chapter uh, 25 right now in the prophecy there. The, 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 the flow of this promise is going to go from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob, and that is what is going to define uh, ethnic Israel. Arabs come from Abraham, or they come from a- Abraham and Esau, but it is the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that establishes whether or not you are a Jew. So he has made his point in the first six verses, and then he is going to use several illustrations to examples from the Old Testament to demonstrate God's choice and that God chose Israel and he has a plan and a purpose for Israel and that plan and purpose will come to fruition. If we want to summarize all of this that's covered in Romans 9 through 11 down to one basic thought, that basic thought is God's faithfulness to his covenant. Because God is a God of righteousness and justice, when he enters into a contract with man, which is what a covenant is, it's just a basic contract, when he enters into that unilateral contract with man, God is going to be faithful to it. No matter how unfaithful we may be, God is not going to say, oh, well, you just messed up, Uh, you've lost your salvation, you've lost the blessing. See, if you go along with... This is the irony in covenant theology. If you take their basic assumption that God made a covenant with Abraham and said, I will do all these things for you, and then they reject uh, the provision of God at the Messiah and the Abrahamic covenant is removed, that would support a view that, that God would take away your salvation. It's really consistent with that. And I think there's some things you can do with that, but we won't get sidetracked on that this evening. So Paul's whole argument here is that God is faithful. It's a very practical, very practical point for all of us is that no matter how much we fail, disobey, no matter whether we reject God, no matter what we do, God is going to be faithful to his contract to us. And if God has uh, saved us, he's not going to unsave us. We're not going to lose salvation. Ultimately, that's a very shallow view of what happens at salvation. So his first example, Paul's first example in verse uh, verse 8 or verse 7, is that in Isaac your seed shall be called. And then he quotes the promise from uh, Genesis chapter uh, 18 
to Sarah, uh, to, or to Abraham, that the seed would come through Sarah. And then he goes to his second example, which has to do with uh, the choice of Jacob, one of the twins through Rebekah. This is verses 10 through 11. Now, the final statement here is the verse in verse 13. And verse 13, to pick up the context in verse 10, not only this he says, but when Rebekah had also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, and then we have the parenthetical statement that seems to support election, unconditional elections defined by Calvinism. It was said to her that the older shall serve the younger. That's the quote from Genesis 25. And then there's another quote from in Romans 9.13. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, what does that mean? Because on the surface it seems like God is saying, okay, I'm going to arbitrarily choose Jacob, and I'm going to bless him, and at the same time I'm arbitrarily choosing to reject and condemn Esau. And the question I raised in the last class was, is this talking about Jacob as an individual in relationship to his eternal destiny, or is this talking about Jacob's descendants? Is it looking at the entire ethnic descent from Jacob, in other words, the nation Israel through one man, and the descendants, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau as one man? And I pointed out that that's the original context. So we have to, when we look at Genesis 25, God says these represent two nations. So Paul isn't going to come along and reinterpret what God said and make it individual. Neither did Malachi. And this quote is from Malachi chapter 1. So we'll have to go back to Malachi to understand what is being said in Malachi. So turn your Bibles to Malachi. And if you were here the last time, there was a handout, and that's the chart that's on the handout. So if you don't didn't bring that with you this time, then you might get lost. But I, I wasn't sure if that would, uh, if the print on that would be large enough to be visible. But I guess, uh, can you read that, Alan? Okay, had to look, look, adjust the glasses a little bit. Okay, so that gives you a basic timeline for what's going on in in Israel after their return from Babylon. Remember, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came in, uh, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and took numerous captives back to Babylon. And that's what Daniel was all about. Daniel went out in the uh, first group of captives that went out about 605 the first time Nebuchadnezzar invaded it was a uh, there the uh, fifth cycle of discipline came in stages 605 uh, I think it was 596 and then uh, or 592 and then 586 were the three different attacks by Nebuchadnezzar and 586 was when the city was was uh, finally destroyed so this is a little background chart I'll come back to it in just just a minute so the, act, the quote from Romans 9.13 comes from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Okay, the you here is Israel. God is addressing the nation. This is a prophecy 
uh, given to a burden, according to verse 1, given to the um, only Italian prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi. Just seeing if anybody's awake. Uh, Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. And so he is presenting this message, and there's uh, several rhetorical questions that are given in, throughout this message to focus our attention on, or to focus the attention of the Jews on their re- rejection of God and what the spiritual issues are. So it begins with a statement related to God's love for Israel in verses 2 through 5. So God begins, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was And God's reply, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now let's just stop there. That's the statement that's take, that Paul t- quotes in Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 11. Excuse me, 9.13. So what is it that Malachi is saying here? Is he talking about individual justification for salvation? In other words, where you're going to end up in eternity. Or is he talking about God's plan for the, for the nations that came forth from, uh, from Jacob and from Esau? And it is clear that he's talking about the nations. He is not talking about the individuals. So let's just understand this in the context of Malachi. It's a great opening because God begins by reaffirming his unconditional love to the nation Israel. And then he is just going to blast them one paragraph after another because of their negative volition, because of their degeneracy, because of their they've just gone right back into assimilation with the pagans living around them. And there's just one abuse after another all the way through Malachi. But this is the introduction. And before God knocks them upside of the head with a two-by-four, he first reaffirms his unconditional love for the nation as exemplified in the uh, Abrahamic covenant promises, which were reiterated to Isaac and then, and then to Jacob. Now, what's the setting here in Malachi? If we look at the chart up on the overhead, the Persian king uh, is uh, Cyrus, who at 536, or excuse me, 538 B.C. issues an edict to the Jews after the uh, Persians had defeated the uh, Chaldeans. Uh, Cyrus issued an edict in 538 B.C., for the Jews to return to the land, or 538, and in 536 they returned under Zerubbabel to build the temple. There were 49,897 Jews that returned in that first return. There are three returns that take place on this chart. You have one return is here. You have another... To learn this new tool. You've got another return here, and you have another return here. The, those are the three returns. The first returns under Zerubbabel, and they rebuild the temple and the altar. 
This is done under the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. That's what those two books are. What we're really dealing with here in this chart is the last three books of the Old Testament called the post-exilic prophets. That is, the prophets who ministered to Israel after the exile, after they returned uh, to the land from the Babylonian captivity. So the first return comes under Zerubbabel. They rebuild the altar, rebuild the temple. The temple's completed in, in about 515 B.C. Then there is a second return. There's a second return here. That takes place some 50 years later under Ezra. And at this time they are to beautify the temple and to reform the people because they are in negative volition. They've let the temple fall into disrepair, which reflects a view. They just don't care about God. They just don't care about what God says to them, and it reflects their, uh, their, their spiritual condition. Then there is a third return that comes uh, under Nehemiah in 444. Now, uh, what's going on in the world at large at this time? Gentile nations are still dominating Jerusalem. It's the time of the Gentiles. And the time of the Gentiles began in 586 B.C. and extends to the end of the tribulation because it is during the time of the Gentiles that Jerusalem is under the domination of Gentile powers. Even today, uh, Jerusalem is... You have Arabs living in much of Jerusalem, and even though Israel is an independent political entity, if the U.S. withdrew support from Israel, it would probably disappear from the face of the map tomorrow because Europeans certainly aren't going to come in and try to uh, support Israel, especially with the Iranians uh, rattling their sabers and making threats and trying to get um, nuclear weapons. And it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen. I mean, the reports this last week that Israel is saying, you keep going the way you're going, we're going to take you out just like we did before. So Israel has been dominated by the Gentiles ever since 586 B.C. And during, even during this time, they were under the control of the Persians. Uh, they existed at, at the, uh, under the mercy of the Persian Empire and then later under the uh, uh, Syrian Empire. It's obvious that there's a Persian background to this. So you have Cyrus. Cyrus is followed by a brief reign of Cambyses and then Smyrnas. And then you have Darius that comes in. And during the reign of Darius, uh, Darius decides after he uh, brings peace and stability, after he ascended to the throne in uh, 521, he's going to uh, go take out the Greeks. And this is when he's defeated at the Battle of Marathon. And he goes home with his tail between his legs. And then he dies in 486. And Xerxes takes over. And Xerxes is the one who goes and invades Greece again. He wants to accomplish what his father did not accomplish. And so he goes and he, this is uh, the army that is, uh, goes through the pillars of fire, Thermopylae. And ultimately they are defeated by the Greeks. And he goes home. And this is the Xerxes who is the Ahasuerus of, of, uh, of Esther. And Esther probably took place after he went home. The last ten years of his reign, he just just totally uh, 
gives in to self-indulgence. He's really moping around because of his defeat by the Greeks. And this is a time when he just gives in to uh, every whim that he has, and that's the background for, for Exodus. And then, I mean, for Esther. And then in 464, uh, he dies. Uh, during this time, what's going on in Israel is that the Jews stop the rebuilding. Uh, Artaxerxes the first comes to the throne, and Artaxerxes is the one who gives the decree to Nehemiah in 444 B.C. to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall. That is the starting point for the 70th, uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel as given in that famous prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. So that sort of gives you the background. So you've had two returns. They've had the third return and then the third return under Nehemiah in 444. But the nation is in a time of, of just spiritual decadence. There's all kinds of problems, and that's what's outlined in the book of Malachi. As we go through the book of Malachi, one of the things that you should note is that there are uh, numerous statements made by the Lord. Some 25 times you have the statement, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 25 times in four chapters. Now the foundation is given in the first and the second verse, God's love for Israel. And you have the first rhetorical question given. God says that you say, in what way have you loved us? And so God is going to demonstrate at the beginning how he has loved Israel. Now, Jacob and Esau were twins. The statement, Jacob I loved, and Esau hated is not a statement of personal love and personal hate. First of all, God does not hate. Secondly, when you have a statement like this in the it in the Hebrew idiom that I love this and hate that, it's a statement of acceptance and rejection and rejection that he has chosen Isaac to be the one through whom he will bless the world in relation to the Abrahamic covenant. And Esau is not the one he's going to work through historically. But it doesn't mean that Esau was under condemnation. In fact, there were many ways in which God personally blessed Esau during Esau's life. However, the descendants of Esau are the Edomites, and the Edomites did come under condemnation from God because of their uh, the way they treated Israel. And so God has, has judged them, judged them before the uh, Jews went out under, under the Babylonian captivity. And God notes in verse 3, But Esau I have hated, and I laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. In verse 4, Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness. In other words, no matter how much they try to establish themselves and make something of themselves, it's not going to happen. Because my plan for history is to bless Israel, and it is not going to be a blessing for Edom as a nation. So we have the first question, which establishes God's covenant love for Israel, that that is not going to change. Then he begins to lower the boom. And the first indictment is given in verses 6 to 15, and he says that they're basically bringing uh, cheap uh, offerings and sacrifices to him because they, are, uh, they ultimately despise 
and hold God in contempt. Let me skip ahead here. They have despised the priests are despising God's name, and this is the Hebrew word bazaar, which means to despise, to disdain, or to hold something in contempt. They bring defiled food on the altar, verse seven. And this word for defiled uh, defiled food is the Hebrew word uh, peresh, which means fecal matter human excrement or dung. So this is, the you have brought defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we defiled you? And it goes on to describe that and their attitude towards them. And I think I picked that Hebrew word up from the wrong verse. But um, this is where, let me see, somewhere since Sunday I also lost my Bible or misplaced it. I thought it was down here in the pulpit. Um, this is how they have profaned the Lord in this in this verse. See, I have my Bible here, so I can't find anything. It's, it, that is the word for defiled. They, it, basically, they are bringing uh, dung to the Lord in His view because they have failed to uh, honor Him, and they're bringing cheap sacrifices. They're bringing uh, lame animals, blind animals, sick animals. They are not bringing. Uh, that to God, which is uh, defined in the Mosaic Covenant. So they're saying that the table of the Lord is contemptible by their actions, and they are treating God as if he's not really there. But now, verse 9, but now they're called by God to entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. And so they're called upon the Lord for grace, this is part of the all. This is part of the second question, where God says, "In what way have you despised my name?" So He goes on in chapter two. He is then going to address the corrupt priesthood. Now, in this part of the chapter, this is the core of Malachi's complaint toward uh, Israel that he is presenting, and there is a warning here of divine uh, divine judgment. And as we go through this chapter, you will note that there are numerous words that are used here related to the law. You have words that we'll get into in a minute, but the focal point here is that Israel has violated God's covenant. That's the main idea in, the, uh, in God's rebuke in chapter 2 is they violated the covenant of God. But that's got to be understood in terms of what God is saying from the very beginning. They violated the covenant, but God's love for them is established by his covenant. He's not going to go back on that. So there is a warning of divine uh, divine justice. God says in verse 2, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. And then he is going to uh, demonstrate his condemnation. This is where this word comes in. Verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your descendants, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and uh, one will take, take you away with it. So God is going to spread excrement, on their faces. That is how he is expressing his 
disdain for them because they have treated him in such a contemptible manner. Furthermore, he is going to uh, demonstrate that the priesthood has been corrupt in this uh, in Israel in this whole matter, and he uses uh, seven synonyms for the law throughout this section to demonstrate the unfaithfulness of the nation. So these are the words that he uses. He uses the word commandment. They have violated his commandment. This word is used in 2.1 and in 2.4. It's the standard Hebrew word for commandment, mitzvah. Then the second word that is used that is a synonym for the law is the word covenant. And the word covenant is used six times in this section. So what do you think the main idea is? This word is repeated again and again in 2.4, and 3.1. It's the basic Hebrew word for covenant or contract, berit. And the repetition of this word throughout this section undergirds the fact that the problem in Israel is that they have failed to fulfill the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. And this is exemplified by the way that the priesthood has become corrupt on the one hand and on the other hand uh, has been mistreated and abused by the people. Look down to verse 7. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. There's another synonym for the, for the law. You have departed from the way and have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. And that phrase, the covenant of Levi, doesn't mean that God made a separate covenant with Levi for the priesthood. It is the, it's a reference to the Mosaic Covenant because it was the Mosaic Covenant that established the Levitical priesthood. So the, uh, Malachi talks about the covenant, the Berith, which is the Mosaic Covenant, references the law of truth, which is a combination of the Hebrew word Torah for law or instruction. And it's interesting, the word Torah comes from a root that has to do with with shooting an arrow and putting it in the target. And so the word Torah has to do with guidance and instruction on how to live according to God's standard of righteousness. And so here it is modified by the uh, adjective truth. It is the law of truth. The law embodies absolute truth. It is referred to, again, just independently in this section by the word law, Torah, and this is God's way. Derek is the Hebrew word, that this is God's way. It is a prescribed path. Now, it's interesting that in contrast to the term for law, which has this idea of putting something on the target, the word for sin has to do with missing the mark. So we have an interesting juxtaposition of words that we find throughout the scripture that the law has to do with getting on target, getting on the bullseye, and hamartia and Old Testament words for sin have to do with missing the mark or violating the standard. So we're either on God's road or the right way or we're on the wrong way. 
Then you have the word ordinances that's used in this section uh, from the Hebrew word hawk, meaning a statute. This is an individual uh, statute or legal principle within the law. And then the last phrase, or towards the end, it refers to the law of Moses and the statutes, which is Torah, and the statutes, again, the word hawk, and judgments, the mishpat. This is how all the mandates in the Mosaic law are defined within the law as the ordinances and judgments of God. So these are all the individual commandments. You know, there's not just 10 commandments, there's 613 commandments in the Mosaic law. And that's summarized by the phrase, the uh, statutes and the judgments of God. So chapter 2 is an indictment that the nation has violated the standards set forth in the Mosaic Law. And this is brought out in the third question, which is in Malachi 2.10. And the last part of the, of the verse, why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenants of the fathers? So they have violated the Mosaic Covenant. Then we go to the fourth question, which is brought out in Malachi 2.17. You've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? See, there's our uh, rhetorical question again. How have we wearied God? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. They have engaged in a campaign of rationalization and justification of sin, so that what is good is called bad, and what is bad is called good. How postmodern. So... Uh, carnality, it never creates anything new. So this fourth question brings out the fact that they are rationalizing and justifying their disobedience uh, to the law. And this is something that we see today. P- this is one reason people want to get the, the mo- don't want to have the Mosaic Law or representation of the Mosaic Law in a courtroom, is that that indicates that law has its root in something that is outside of creation, outside of man, and has to do with eternal absolutes. And man in his incarnality in is in rebellion against God, in rebellion against the idea that there are any kind of absolutes, and can't stand to have anything remind him that he is under the authority of God. And that's why you have people getting so bent out of shape over things like this, is because it's not simply a historical issue, it's not simply a legal issue, it is a a, commi- a spiritual commitment in the soul of the unbeliever who has rejected God. Well, we got, God continues to lay out his indictment, and in Malachi 3.7, he raises a fifth rhetorical question, and there he says, that from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances, that is, those 613 commandments in the law, and you've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. There is, again, you have God's gracious offer to Israel. He, No matter how disobedient they are, he is offering them uh, salvation and recovery. But they say, in what way shall we return? How shall we do this? They are establishing their uh, doubt of God. And then in Malachi 3.8, there's another indictment. The question is, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And this is where God says that you have not only robbed me, as he stated earlier in terms of bringing 
these defiled sacrifices to the temple and these unworthy sacrifices, but you're not bringing the proper tithes or taxes that were laid out under the Mosaic law into the temple. So they are, in effect, uh, stealing from God. But God is faithful to that opening statement that is made about his choice of Esau and or his choice of Jacob. And uh, in verse 16, he holds forth the promise of future a future glory. He says, then the, verse 16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the, on the day that I make them my jewels. This looks forward to the uh, second coming of Christ when, when the covenants will be fulfilled and God will establish the nation again. And this is where uh, Malachi heads in chapter 4 is it is a look ahead. The day is coming, burning like an oven. This is the judgment of God that will come at the end of the tribulation and the great day of the Lord. And that is when the kingdom will be established. So Malachi is all about a nation that is under divine discipline for their carnality and disobedience. They've intermarried with the Gentiles. They have absorbed and assimilated paganism. They have failed to support the Levites. The Levites themselves have become corrupted. They've oppressed the poor. The people didn't trust God. But Malachi comes along and says, at the very beginning, God loves you, so that no matter how unfaithful you are as a nation, God is going to be faithful to his covenants, and ultimately, he's going to fulfill that promise. So when we come to this statement that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, the question we need to address again is, is this talking about individual justification, or is this talking about God's choice for blessing Israel within time in terms of specific historical blessings? And the answer is the latter. God is selecting Israel for specific blessings in time. And it has to do with God's plan and purposes. He's not talking about justification, salvation here. He's not talking about justification, salvation, uh, when God pronounces the prophecy in Genesis 25. He's not talking about justification, salvation here. And Paul's not using it to refer to justification, salvation in Romans chapter 9. So this verse, which almost is used by uh, Reformed theologians and Calvinists to justify the doctrine of unconditional election doesn't speak to this issue uh, at all, doesn't speak to it in any way, shape, or form. So our conclusion is that God is choosing, God in his sovereignty has the right to choose to raise up certain nations and to tear down certain nations in order to fit his historical plan. But God is always going to be faithful to his covenant promises to Israel. And in the same way, God's always going to be faithful to his promises to us so that no matter how disobedient we are, no matter how we may fail, God is never going to leave us, he's never going to forsake us, and he's never going to desert us. So the conclusion is that if you're still alive, no matter what you've done, God still has a plan for your life. And there's always a basis for recovery and when there's recovery, there will be consequent blessing.
Well, that ends our study on Jacob and Esau in terms of how they're used in Malachi and Romans. And next time we'll come back and look at the episode of the uh, lentil soup. And that gets into a whole new area related to inheritance. And that opens up a whole uh, interesting study for us. It's going to gel with our study in Hebrews because, of course, Esau's this whole episode is going to be picked up as an illustration in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 related to the, the basic theme of that book. So it's interesting how everything sort of interconnects. Well, let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word tonight, to be challenged by these things, to recognize that your word is internally consistent, which reflects that ultimately there is only one author. Even though the scriptures are written by over 40 different human authors, it is your mind, your thinking, that is revealed in Scripture, and so it is internally consistent. We thank you for your faithfulness, that our relationship with you is not dependent on who we are or what we do, but it is dependent upon your eternal faithful love. Uh, We pray that you would challenge us with the things we study tonight, help us to understand them, that we may be uh, more clear on your plans and purposes in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.